Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight, most people got poorer during the COVID lockdowns, probably poorer than they realize. They're finding out now, unfortunately. But the tech companies got a whole lot richer. And it's simple. Why? Politicians forced the entire population indoors at gunpoint. So millions of people had no choice but to live out their lives in the lonely hell of the Internet. That turned out to be a disaster for America, as rising suicide rates now attest, but for Silicon Valley, it made for an epic payday. And that epic payday was soon reflected epically on the balance sheets of its biggest local lenders, which was called Silicon Valley Bank. In 2018, SVB had about $49 billion on deposit. Three years later, that same bank had amassed more than $189 billion. That is a gargantuan increase in deposits over a very short period of time. It was certainly dramatic enough to have raised a very serious question and an obvious one. What was Silicon Valley Bank going to do with all that money? Even in the San Francisco Bay Area, it would be hard to find qualified borrowers for $189 billion. You could not responsibly loan all of that money, even if you wanted to. So what would you do with it? Now, that's the question you would have asked if you were paying attention, both from inside SVB or from the federal regulatory agencies in Washington. But it turns out nobody was paying attention. Nobody thought to ask that or many other questions. Nobody thought to stress test Silicon Valley Bank in the middle of a boom. And of course, that turned out to be a grave mistake. But the remaining question is, what were they doing at SVB and at the other banks that have either failed or come close to failing over the last week? Well... They were doing what you would do if you were a mediocre but highly credentialed irresponsible person with a narcissism complex who talked a lot about your ultra marathons and your commitment to climate change. If the central bank handed you trillions of dollars free with no strings attached, you would party like it was 1999. Or to update the reference, you would virtue signal like it was 2023. You would spend hundreds of millions of dollars bragging about what a good person you are. And that, of course, is exactly what they did. Consider Signature Bank. Now, Signature Bank was shut down by federal regulators this weekend on Sunday because it posed an imminent threat to the entire financial system. Its demise marked the third largest bank collapse in American history. Why did Signature Bank fail? We could give you the technical math-based answer, but here's the real reason. Signature Bank failed because it was corrupt. That's a strong charge. How do we know that? Well, simple. Its directors gave Barney Frank a board seat. That's it. Frank is the same person who was a member of Congress from Massachusetts, wrote the banking regulations imposed on Signature Bank and all the other banks by Washington after the 08 collapse. Barney Frank has never had a real job. He has spent his entire life in politics. He's elderly now, but he has no relevant experience or expertise. So the only reason that Signature Bank hired him is because he once regulated Signature Bank. Now, if we were looking at a foreign country, we'd describe that instantly as what? A payoff. The people who actually ran Signature Bank, meanwhile, the so-called bankers, did not seem to spend a lot of time banking. And of course, they didn't need to bank, really, because the Fed was guaranteeing them a never-ending torrent of cash in the form of free money. So what did they do? Well, here is Scott Shea, the chairman of Signature Bank, welcoming his employees to a meeting of the bank's critical pride council. This video is from last December, just months before Signature Bank slipped beneath the waves. And the Pride Council in question, as you will see in a moment, featured a self-described genderqueer transmasculine person called Finn Brigham, who arrived to teach employees about pronoun use. Watch. I'm Scott Shea, chairman of Signature Bank, and it is a pleasure 
for me to welcome you to this multimedia, multicasted, multispatial meeting of the Pride Council. And I'm just thrilled that there are about 40 people in the room. I understand there are something like 190 people at watch parties. So hi to you all at the watch parties. You know, the most common pronouns that folks are familiar with are she and he. Becoming much more common, and I, you know, I don't know if there's anyone in the signature bank world, but probably you have clients that use they, them as pronouns. Um, they're gender neutral pronouns on purpose. We talked about folks that are non-binary that intentionally don't identify as male or female. So some of those folks use they, them as their pronouns. Z is another gender neutral pronoun, um, and the other part of that would be here, spelled H-I-R. Scott Shea is just thrilled to introduce the genderqueer trans masculine pronoun expert and to host watch parties so everyone else can watch him explain pronouns. What do they pay that guy? What did they pay that guy? How much will they have to pay you to swallow your dignity, to completely eliminate the possibility that your children would ever respect you in order to put on a performance that embarrassing? Probably a lot. We don't know what he was paid. Clearly a lot. Clearly the bank got a lot of money because trans pronoun experts are not cheap at all, but Signature did have a lot of cash, of course, because the Federal Reserve was printing it, and they got the first pass. This is what low interest rates for 13 years means. So again, this was going on four years. Here, for example, is Signature Bank's music video. Did you know banks made music videos? Of course they did. They didn't know what else to do with the money. This one is from 2011. Sorry, it was a dance party at Signature Bank. Bank. Like there was banking going on. It was a dance party at Signature Bank with pronouns. And that's not the only video from Signature Bank like that. You can go online and find many others, including their Broadway-inspired sketches. You could spend all day watching these videos we just did and are better off for it. But it's not just Signature. The guy who ran Signature was really craven and repulsive, but he's not alone. No one at any of these banks seemed to spend a lot of time banking, which the rest of us believed was the core business of a bank, but no. In fact, at Silicon Valley Bank, only a single member of the board had any experience at investment banking. The rest were silly rich ladies. The Daily Mail reports that every other member of the board was an Obama or Clinton mega donor. One silly rich lady was such a sensitive soul, of course she was, that she had to go to a Shinto shrine to pray when Donald Trump won in 2016. We looked up her picture. She doesn't seem like a native-born Shinto, but whatever. There was a lot of fashionable rich girl politics underway at Silicon Valley Bank, but banking, not so much. SVB had no head of risk management for nine months in the year before it collapsed. Ooh, guess someone should have been paying attention, but no. They're visiting Shinto shrines and having dance parties with the pronouns. Meanwhile, Silicon Valley Bank UK, that would be the UK arm of Silicon Valley Bank, in case the name didn't give it away, did have a head of risk management. Unfortunately, the head was called Jay Ersapa, who didn't seem to know a lot about managing risks or care. 
she talked mostly about herself because it's so, so fascinating to talk about yourself a lot. Me, 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 enough about you or risk management. Let's talk about me. And she did. At one point, she described herself as a, quote, queer person of color from working class background. Oh, yes. Narcissism is so much more fun than banking. So needless to say, the risk manager was working hard on LGBTQIA plus, 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 plus rights. How did that end? How does it work if you run a bank like this with people who just talk about themselves and their identities as if those are interesting topics? Well, this week, Silicon Valley's UK banks, UK branch sold for the fully publicly disclosed sum of $1, $1 for the bank. But as you would imagine, in a bank where nobody cared about risk management, the collapse was pretty entertaining for the rest of us. Of course, there's a tragedy at the core that imperils the entire Western economy. But the good news is we have videos like this. This is a video that SVB put out days before it went under. I think there's a big disparity between the investments in black-led companies than other companies. We want to help close the Latino wealth gap. Oh, more entitled people talking about themselves. Let's talk about me and my identity. It's so interesting. Banking is boring. The Fed's got that covered. Is this starting to scare you a little bit? This is what banks are actually like? And we don't want to alarm anybody or get censored by Senator Mark Kelly of Arizona, who is now on the record saying he does not want you complaining about banks. But we should tell you it's not just signature SVB officials who talk like that. J.P. Morgan, that's the biggest bank in the world, we think, as of tonight, one of the few banks that consumers still have some confidence in, put out a whole video about how they give out money, not on the basis of economics or math, but on the basis of irrelevant characteristics like your appearance. They're judging the book by its cover. Watch. The events of summer 2020 highlighted long-standing inequalities, particularly among the Black, Hispanic, and Latino communities that has had a significant impact on our country. At J.P. Morgan Chase, a key goal is to help break down systemic barriers that have created profound disparities. That's why we committed $30 billion towards racial equity to provide resources and opportunity for our Black, Hispanic, and Latino communities. We've invested more than $100 million in minority-owned banks across the country and are building a more equitable and representative workforce. We're committed to racial equity. <laughs> Wait a second! Am I getting a moral lecture from a bank? From a bank? Really? A bank is telling America how to live, describing America's sins. You're a bank. Where's the left, by the way? 90 years ago in the 1930s, the last Great Depression, nobody would have sat still from a moral lecture delivered by a bank. But they're very common now. Why? Well, a little history. After 2008, a movement emerged called Occupied Wall Street. At the time, it was at the cutting edge of left-wing social activism. And it did seem kind of organic. Most of these things are completely fake, like BLM, obviously orchestrated. But Occupy Wall Street seemed kind of real. It seemed like angry people. And some people from Occupy Wall Street turned their attention to the head of J.P. Morgan, who, of course, is Jamie Dimon. They went to his office. They held signs outside for 24 hours a day. And they hassled other bank presidents, too. And before long, a funny thing happened. Everybody in the media decided that Occupy Wall Street was boring 
Anything about economics was boring, because who cares about carried interest? What's that? What we really want to talk about, they told you, is racial oppression and your role in it. And so we got a lot of that, only for like 12 years now. An endless parade of lies about this or that, your complicity in systemic racism, police shootings. They're everywhere. Everyone's getting killed by the cops. Hands up, don't shoot. Remember that? So we're all still talking about that nonsense, ripping the country apart along racial lines. But guess what we're not talking about? Oh, banks. <laughs> I guess who loves that? Banks. They deeply appreciate that. And maybe that's why, as BLM rioters torch major cities, Democrats who took big money from big banks knelt in reverence to BLM. We are here to honor George Floyd. In a moment, we will have a moment of silence, actually eight minutes and 46 seconds of silence in honor of George Floyd and so many others who lost their lives or were abused by police brutality. For those who wish to, we will now kneel for our moment of silence. So great. What does everybody in that frame have in common? Well, they all have Kenty cloth robes on. A lot of them are wearing masks. No, but they're all bank shills. That's what it is. They're all bank shills. They're shills for finance. Of course, every single one of them, and particularly the utterly soulless Nancy Pelosi. She'll say anything on behalf of the banks. And the banks love this, of course. They want to make sure it continued. And that's why, according to amazing new analysis from the Claremont Institute, Silicon Valley Bank, brace yourself, spent more than $73 million on donations to BLM and related organizations. Wow! And this is not personal funds. Apparently, these are bank funds. Might be kind of nice to have that money now. But it's hard to argue, even in retrospect, now that SVB has failed, that that was a bad investment. Because even now, as banks are collapsing, no one in media is anxious to criticize banks, almost no matter what they do. It doesn't matter what they do. Even if they were to just pulling this out of thin air, Subscribe to the Fox News YouTube channel to catch our nightly opens, stories that are changing the world and changing your life. From Tucker Carlson tonight. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. The war ongoing in Ukraine, whatever your view of it, is completely reshuffling the world order and America's place in it. And it dawned on us last week that it's not clear where some of the people running for the Republican nomination stand on that war. So we sent a questionnaire to everyone running, and amazingly, almost all of them responded candidly and at length. And the picture that emerges of where the Republican candidates running for president stand in Ukraine is a little bit shocking. It's not at all what we expected, and it's not at all what Republicans on Capitol Hill are saying. More evidence that there's a disconnect between Republicans in Washington and everyone else. We'll get to that in just a minute. But first tonight, it has been 15 years since the global financial crisis of 2008, a long time but it hasn't gone away. Its consequences, in fact, still define our world. Why is the U.S. government so deeply in debt? How did Wall Street get so much money? What did they do exactly? Why are housing prices so high? Why do our leaders stoke racial conflict? Why have so many Americans concluded that their system is rigged? In every case, the answers to those questions is the same. It all began in 2008. Now, 2008 and its aftermath is a complex story, but let's just sum up in the broadest possible terms what happened. Big financial institutions took foolish risks and nearly blew up the entire U.S. economy. We knew right away what had happened and who did it, but nobody was ever punished. 
the reckless bankers responsible got off. So did the politicians who encouraged the reckless bankers to be reckless. Nobody went to jail. Nobody was even banished from the industry. In fact, some of the wrongdoers even got their bonuses that year. So we had economic collapse, but it didn't hurt them at all. Why? Well, simple. The government bailed out the banks. That was controversial, but bipartisan. And at the time, they told us in bipartisan fashion that they were saving capitalism. But they weren't. In fact, they were inverting capitalism. What happened next is very simple. Wall Street was allowed to privatize its gains, but socialize its risks. That meant if things went well, the finance people got rich, in fact, richer than any group in human history. But if things went south, the government, you, would swoop in to save them. Pretty good deal. But for more than a decade, very few complained about this arrangement because things went very, very well. Wall Street boomed. And the root of Wall Street's success, no matter what they tell you, was low interest rates. Not new innovation, low interest rates. Low interest rates make a bull market inevitable. So in a normal, non-distorted capitalist economy, companies become valuable, more valuable, when they produce more goods and services that people want to buy. But in an economy controlled by monetary policy run by the Federal Reserve, companies become valuable when interest rates decline. So for 13 years, interest rates remain near zero. In retrospect, now that it's ended, this was crazy behavior. These were emergency measures declared by the Federal Reserve after 2008, but they never ended. And because they never ended for 13 years, the American economy was distorted beyond recognition in ways too numerous to count. Venture capital and private equity exploded. So did cryptocurrency, so did asset prices, particularly real estate. There was an ocean of money flooding the system. And the people who pay half the tax rate you do benefited most. They started buying third houses and flying private. But there was also a problem that you didn't hear a lot about with low interest rates. If interest rates are at zero, how do you get meaningful returns on your money? This was a problem that virtually every investor faced for more than a decade, very much including the banks. At some point, investors became tempted to make very risky bets. If they wanted to produce returns, they had to. As they say on Wall Street, Tina, there is no option. One of the risky bets that banks made was loading up on long-term treasury bonds from the U.S. government as a surrogate for cash. Though, of course, bonds are not cash. They're different from cash, as we're now learning. But that worked fine as long as interest rates remained low. But once interest rates rose as a response to inflation, as obviously they were always going to do, nothing lasts forever, including zero interest rates, once that happened, those bonds were worth less than the banks had paid for them. And so the banks began to fail. You are seeing that right now. <laughs> You're also seeing, revealed for everyone to see, the other effect of 13 years of artificial Fed-driven prosperity. And that is a lot of silly, frivolous people in charge. They're like inherited money people. They think they earned it. <laughs> but they didn't. Because when money is free from the Fed, you don't have to be a serious person to get rich. You can do whatever you want because there's no consequence. You can put BLM logos on your website. You can spend investor funds on female empowerment ski weekends in Tahoe. When interest rates are zero, you can do anything because making money is easy. Everybody's a genius. Anyone can do it. And unfortunately, a lot of very stupid people did do it. On Friday, as you know, Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, failed. That became the second largest bank failure in American history. Then on Sunday, authorities took over Signature Bank in New York. That became the third largest bank failure in American history. Then today, shortly after the markets opened, trading in several regional banks had to be halted 
Western Alliance was down almost 80%. First Republic, which of course Jim Cramer endorsed just a few days ago on CNBC. <laughs> that was down nearly 70%. Jim Cramer's always welcome to come on this show for amusement purposes. PacWest down 50%, Comerica down 40%, and so on. So there was panic, of course, reflected in markets, and it wasn't just regional banks that were affected. For a while this morning, you could not even trade stock in Charles Schwab, venerable Charles Schwab. Schwab went down 25% and tripped a circuit breaker. That's bad. In fact, that kind of panic could quickly, conceivably, become a catastrophe. So on the brink of catastrophe, you need one thing, strong, competent leadership. But we don't have that. We have Joe Biden. Today, he shuffled out to the podium and announced a bailout. I want to briefly speak about what's happening in Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Today, thanks to the quick action of my administration over the past few days, Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. All right. So the money the Biden administration is using for this bailout apparently is coming from the FDIC. So the feds have it covered. Don't worry about the details. Everything's totally fine. Hold on. Slow down, pal. How did this happen? Can we get an explanation for that? Don't we have regulators? And how did those regulators, since we're pretty confident they exist and taking big salaries, how did they miss the fact that SVB was insolvent apparently for months and not in some complex credit default swap way? You're going to spend 5,000 words trying to understand, but in a really simple way that's easy to understand. Their liabilities were bigger than their assets. It's very simple. How did nobody notice that? The people who were paid to notice it. Well, Joe Biden unfortunately answered none of those questions. He just ran for the door. Thank you. God bless you. And may God protect our troops. See you in California. Mr. President, what do you know right now about why this happened? And can you assure Americans that there won't be a ripple effect? Do you expect all other banks to fail, Mr. President? Should all depositors be protected at all banks? All right. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> OK. Do we know why this happened? He's trying to figure out how to work the doorknob. What we know is the Biden administration is backstopping these deposits. OK. But that's not the end of the story. In some ways, it's the beginning. So here's the part where you pause and ask yourself a question that too few seem to be considering right now. They're doing this. What are they going to get in return? Oh, something for sure. Remember that after 2008, the Obama administration, Eric Holder, swooped in and imposed DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion standards, on the entire financial sector. And that's one of the main reasons our big banks are now increasingly incompetent, and also one of the reasons Americans are so divided by race. Ideologues used the 2008 bank bailout to kill American meritocracy. That's a big step, mostly unacknowledged, but we're living with its consequences. So you have to ask yourself, what are they going to do this time? Well, we know we're about to see bank consolidation, big banks eating little banks, and that means less competition, more consolidation means more government control. So what are they going to do with that control? Well, all things being equal, if people don't start making a lot of noise and exerting an awful lot of pressure, it'll mean digital currency, a currency that politicians control. Sign up for the CBDC app to get your food stamps. You think that's not coming? Of course it's coming. They'd like it to come in any case. Now, we're not alleging a conspiracy here, but we did notice that the four biggest banks, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, Chase, are doing well. 
And we also noticed that the White House appears to be, maybe we're just reading into this too much, trying to induce runs on regional banks. They seem to be trying to take away your confidence in those banks. Here's Corinne Jean-Pierre, the White House Secretary, not someone we'd ever accuse of having an original thought, but she's a vessel for the plans of others. Here she is on Friday as SVB was collapsing. Now, she doesn't say a word about the fundamentals of the market or the security of your money in banks. Instead, she talks about the one thing that matters to her, which is the racial identity of the people in charge of our finance system. Watch. I do want to take a moment to note the historic nature of the moment that you see in front of you right now. All three of us are historic first in our roles. The first black woman to serve as CEA chair, OMB director, White House press secretary, the first black women right in front of you for all of those three important, important key roles uh, in the administration. These people lack all self-awareness as if anyone would care. Why should we care? Is there some reason to care? And by the way, you are discrediting by your stupidity and clear incompetence anything you're promoting. You should keep that in mind. But big picture, if you wanted to make people less confident in regional banks and the banking system more broadly, if you wanted to maybe induce a run on the banks, this might be how you'd talk. Oh, we're all of a certain racial group. Huh? What does it have to do with whether the banks have enough cash in reserve to cover their balance sheets? So what we do know is that the Democratic Party, the Biden administration, sees this crisis as a means of expanding their control. And we know this because in a recent Zoom call with the Fed, Treasury Department, and other financial regulators, with members of Congress, Senator Mark Kelly of Arizona asked whether there was a program in place to censor social media posts that could lead to a national run on banks. Now, that's according to Congressman Thomas Massey. Michael Schellenberg has a great piece on this today. Massey was on the call. So think about this for a second. You've got a deposit at a regional bank that's holding tons, way more than you know, of long-term treasuries that are worth a lot less than they were when the bank bought them. That means that bank is at risk. That means your money's at risk. But Senator Mark Kelly of Arizona doesn't want you to know about that. Why wouldn't they want you to know that? Kind of interesting. That kind of censorship could actually crush people. So we have to ask the obvious question, how close are we to some sort of disaster? And to what extent are the people in charge abetting it? Subscribe to the Fox News YouTube channel to catch our nightly opens, stories that are changing the world and changing your life. I'm Tucker Carlson tonight. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. It's been a tough couple of years for the experts. When it comes to big public policy questions, complicated adult stuff like war and disease and the economy, really the only things that matter, the assumption in Washington has for many years been that you should not worry about it. Don't sweat the details. That's not your role as a citizen and as a voter. We don't have that kind of democracy, the kind where you might actually participate. No, your job is to trust the experts and their conclusions and then obey them. But COVID kind of blew that up. If there's one thing we learned from that disaster, it's that public policy experts very often had no clue what they were talking about. Your hippie aunt in Mendocino County knew a lot more about how to beat a flu virus than your average virologist on CNN. Your aunt would tell you to go outside, get some exercise, some sunlight, some fresh air, stop eating junk food, turn off your computer once in a while, spend time with other people. Be healthy. That advice worked. The experts, by contrast, made you get the vaccine, and that did not work. 
So by March of 2021, people are starting to figure this out. Anyone who was paying attention in America understood that the experts, many of them, were full of it. And it was exactly at that moment that The Atlantic magazine in Washington published a piece pushing back against the growing consensus. That story was entitled, Following Your Gut Isn't the Right Way to Go. It's hard to think of a funnier headline, really, mostly because it's so spectacularly absurd. You should always trust your gut, obviously. It is the one thing that will never betray you. But The Atlantic magazine wanted you to know that your natural instincts are, in fact, worthless. The experts had a rough year, the magazine conceded, but we still have to trust them. Right. Actually, we don't have to trust them. And on big questions of public policy, we absolutely should not trust them. It's a democracy. But Washington is continuing to demand that we do trust them. Why? There may be a reason. Maybe COVID isn't the only big project they have in mind for us, a project the experts will justify at MSNBC. And indeed, it's not. There is the climate change agenda. And the climate change agenda is the single most ambitious effort to remake human civilization in all recorded history. And it's coming. In fact, it's already in progress. The only reason that millions and millions of Americans aren't protesting in the streets tonight over this effort to completely overturn their lives is that on some level, many people still do trust the experts, at least on climate change. But should they? We were pondering that this morning when we saw that the world's most famous climate change expert, Greta Thunberg of Sweden, just deleted a tweet she wrote in June of 2018. Here it is, quote, a top climate scientist is warning that climate change will wipe out all of humanity unless we stop using fossil fuels over the next five years. Scientist, of course, was a Harvard professor, so obviously that prediction was going to be correct. But here we are still driving our Silverados and still alive, and some of us are still happy. So it does make you wonder if Greta Thunberg, the greatly revered Greta Thunberg, a perennial finalist for the Nobel Peace Prize, could have gotten that so wrong. What else have the climate experts gotten wrong? And how long have they been getting it wrong? Well, fortunately, the Competitive Enterprise Institute has done the research on this, and it turns out these people have been very wrong for a very long time. 1969, the New York Times was printing climate hysteria from an expert called Paul Ehrlich, quote, we must realize that unless we are extremely lucky, everybody will disappear in a cloud of blue steam in 20 years. That was Paul Ehrlich in 1969. Well, here it is, 2023, and that same Paul Ehrlich, who's now 90 and still publishing books and still being cited on 60 Minutes, <laughs> is still telling us that we're all going to die. Now, clearly, Paul Ehrlich had some sort of traumatic childhood. He's been inflicting it on the rest of us for over 50 years. And for over 50 years... His fellow experts have taken him seriously. Now, back then, of course, climate change didn't mean global warming. It meant a new ice age. In 1970, the Boston Globe reported, quote, scientists predict a new ice age by 21st century. According to the Globe, air pollution may obliterate the sun and cause a new ice age in the first third of the next century. An ice age. In 1972, Brown University's science department sent a letter to the White House explaining that they had deep concern with the future of the world because this ice age falls within the rank of processes which produced the last ice age. Two years later, 1974, The Guardian reported that, quote, spy satellites show new, new ice age is coming fast. And the report cited, just for moral weight, analysis carried out at Columbia University. Then, 
A few years later, 1977, the actor Leonard Nimoy was not a science expert technically, but played one at one point on television, shot this video. We are unprepared for the next advance. The result could be hunger and death on a scale unprecedented in all of history. What scientists are telling us now is that the threat of an ice age is not as remote as they once thought. During the lifetime of our grandchildren, Arctic cold and perpetual snow could turn most of the inhabitable portions of our planet into a polar desert. Hunger and death on an unprecedented scale. Someone else with the tragic childhood he inflicted on the rest of us. But by the early 1980s, when the ice didn't arrive, well, the experts decided the problem wasn't too much cold. It was too much heat. It was global warming. In 1989, the Associated Press ran this story, quote, a senior U.N. environmental official says entire nations could be wiped off the face of the earth by rising sea levels if global warming trend is not reversed by the year 2000. In other words, 23 years ago. That same year, 1989, a climate expert called Jim Hansen met with a reporter from Salon. According to Salon, Hansen explained that within 20 or 30 years, quote, the West Side Highway, which runs along the Hudson River in Manhattan, will be underwater. Underwater. We checked tonight, and actually it's congested, but still a road. Then in March of 2000, the Independent newspaper ran a piece explaining that snowfalls are now just a thing of the past. And we're quoting, snow is starting to disappear from our lives. The piece quoted a climate expert claiming that, quote, children just aren't going to know what snow is. No idea what snow is. It'll be a relic, not of the ice age, but of the great inferno of global warming. Then in 2004, amazingly, civilization still existed. The Guardian predicted that, quote, major European cities will be sunk beneath rising seas as Britain is plunged into a Siberian climate by 2020, which is a little confusing because global warming doesn't typically produce a Siberian climate. And it was around this time that they decided, hey, we don't want to get pinned down on the details. Will it be too hot? Will it be too cold? We don't want to say. Something bad's going to happen, so we're going to call it climate change. And that paved the way for Al Gore, who in 2006 released his famous documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. And the beauty of An Inconvenient Truth is now that it's been, well, inconveniently more than 15 years since it came out, we can fact check its claims. Here's the trailer. If you look at the 10 hottest years ever measured, they've all occurred in the last 14 years. And the hottest of all was 2005. This is Patagonia 75 years ago and the same glacier today. This is Mount Kilimanjaro 30 years ago and last year, within the decade, there will be no more snows of Kilimanjaro. Al Gore also said there would be no ice in the Arctic. He quoted researchers, climate researchers, experts, and he explained that, quote, the North Pole will be ice-free in the summer by 2013 because of man-made global warming. Now, it does take a certain level of chutzpah to make a prediction that precise, and Al Gore made many of them, and all of them turned out to be wrong. And for a normal person, that would be a cue, maybe it's time to retire. I'm rich on Google stock, maybe I could just stop talking because 
Of course, I've been disgraced by my own foolish predictions. But no, he kept going. And he was helped in that by the entire news media. It makes you wonder why. News organizations exist to bring you the news, to assess whether things are true or not. But if all of them collude to hide lying, you have to ask, is there something else going on here? We'll let you decide. We do know that by 2006, NBC News informed the world that, quote, a leading U.S. climate researcher says the world has a 10-year window till 2016, a window of opportunity to take decisive action on global warming and avert catastrophe. Well, of course, by their predicted date, Donald Trump became president, but that's not what they were predicting. In 2008, the Associated Press reported that according to a top NASA scientist, in five to 10 years, the Arctic will be free of sea ice in the summer. That didn't happen, but of course, no one was ever held to account for bad predictions, so they just kept going. John Kerry, now our climate czar, cited that very same science in 2009. Watch. You have sea ice, which is melting at a rate that the Arctic Ocean now increasingly is exposed. In five years, scientists predict we will have the first ice-free Arctic summer. <laughs> What's hilarious is this is a guy who's never had a job. He's only been in politics. He's never done one useful thing. He's not a scientist. He, he, he's never done research. He's actually not an expert, but because he's way more aggressive than you are, and because he has access to the media, which amplify his claims, he poses as one. Now, what's strange about the prediction you just heard is that John Kerry's prediction contradicts Barack Obama's famous climate prediction from a year earlier. You probably remember this. Because if we are willing to work for it and fight for it and believe in it, then I am absolutely certain that generations from now, we will be able to look back and tell our children that this was the moment when we began to provide care for the sick and good jobs to the jobless. This was the moment when the rise of the oceans began to slow and our planet began to heal. Sad to watch that. All the cheering people, they seem so sincere. He's going to save the world. He can control the weather. He's Jesus. But in fact, the global healing Obama promised at the beginning of his first term never came. And neither did the global destruction. Here, by the way, is Neil deGrasse Tyson, another great predictor of things, saying that by 2014, the Statue of Liberty will soon be underwater. You know, you know what you know, I tell people? This really, this, get, this wakes them into, here in the, in the New York metropolitan area, I say, you know, if we lose the ice caps, you know how high the water will be? I say, oh, maybe a couple of feet. Uh, no, it would come up to the Statue of Liberty's elbow, the one that's holding <laughs> <laughs> the Declaration of Independence. That's where the water line will be. That man's a scientist. And of course, climate does change. It has always changed. In fact, the landscape we live in now is formed by climate change. The glaciers are a product of climate change. The climate is changing now. It never stops changing. That is a process that we didn't cause and that we can't control to any great degree. We'll never be able to control. Um, and there are upsides to it and downsides to it. By the way, if the earth is indeed getting warmer and it seems to be, well, then that will make more arable land in places like Canada and Northern Europe. So like everything in this life, in the temporal world, it's a mixed blessing. But you only hear the downsides, which tells you a lot. It tells you this is not science, it's manipulation. 
These aren't reports from the experts. These are threats. Here's Joe Biden. That's what climate change is about. It is literally, not figuratively, a clear and present danger. The latest climate report, nothing less than, quote, code red for humanity. Let me say it again. Code red for humanity. Code red for humanity. Of course, he never explains what that means. You're going to have to check your book of science to find out. Of course, in the details, they don't offer as many details now because they've all been wrong. But to the extent they do, they are provably wrong over time. So the question is, why are we still being bullied by these people? It has nothing to do with saving the earth. They hate the earth. They hate nature. It's about controlling us. And maybe we should recognize that. Subscribe to the Fox News YouTube channel to catch our nightly opens. Stories that are changing the world and changing your life. From Tucker Carlson tonight. Now, according to an oversight investigation on March 1st, 2017, less than two months after then-Vice President Biden left office, well, not one, not two, not three, but four different members of the Biden family, they started receiving payments from an entity named Robinson Walker LLC. Now, Joe Biden's brother, James, received a whopping $360,000 in incremental payments. Zero experience Hunter, you know, the author and artist that he is, portraits of a crack addict, he got uh, $500,000. Bo Biden, uh, Bo Biden's widow, Haley, uh, who was also Hunter's lover at the time, no judgments, whatever. This is a messed up family. Anyway, he got, she got 35000 and an unknown Biden received seventy grand. Now, we don't, want, we don't know what these various members of the Biden family did to actually earn the money. But what we do know is where it came from. It came from the People's Republic of China. Now, we're going to know a lot more when we get the suspicious activity reports. They've been very slow to hand them over to the committee. This is the House Government Reform Oversight Committee. But according to the ongoing investigation, prior to making the bulk of these payments, Robinson Walker LLC, which is operated by a Biden business associate, they received a $3 million wire transfer from a major Chinese energy company. But that's not all. In 2015, when Joe Biden was still vice president, Robinson Walker LLC, they received a wire totaling nearly $180,000 from an unknown company with a foreign bank account. Now, that was money that was divided between uh, Walker and members of the Biden family. So, again, we ask, what did the Bidens do for all of this money? What did J Joe do for any of this money? What favors might be owed to the likes of China and Russia and Ukraine and all these foreign countries that they apparently made a lot of money with? Now, if you think uh, that Joe wouldn't sell out the country to benefit his low-class, money-hungry family, uh, let's follow the money, because that's where the answer will eventually be found. Uh, because it happened over and over again. Look at the case of Ukraine. Zero experience hunter. Goes on GMA. Uh, do you have any experience in Ukraine? No. Oil? No. Energy? No. Gas? No. Coal? No. Well, are you being paid millions? Hunter Biden literally said... I don't know. And, and to ABC's credit, they said, maybe because your, your father's the vice president in charge of Ukraine? Probably. Yeah, so it makes sense. How do you get all that money without any experience? Anyway, in a statement, Hunter Biden's spokesperson, they finally got back to us. We're glad to see that. 
Uh, they say they did not deny the payments. They called the investigation a wild and baseless right-wing conspiracy. Where have we heard that before? Hunter Biden, a private citizen with every right to pursue his own business endeavors, joined several business partners in seeking a joint venture with a privately owned legitimate energy company in China. It was all above board, according to Hunter. Hey, Sean Hannity here. Hey, click here to subscribe to Fox News YouTube page and catch our hottest interviews and most compelling analysis. You will not get it anywhere else. Number one, if Putin gets away with this, there goes Taiwan. The two are connected. So I'm all in to win it. And you're not going to win this war by uh, bleeding Ukraine dry and giving them weapons they need too late to affect the outcome on the battlefield. So I think if we stop helping Ukraine, the result is going to be a slaughter, you know, followed by you now live in a world where the message will be pretty clear. And that is that if you want to invade a smaller neighbor and take their land, you can do it. And there won't be you know, many consequences for it. Support for Ukraine sparking a new divide in the Republican Party. Republican lawmakers pushing back against potential 2024 contender Ron DeSantis after claiming aid for Ukraine is not a vital national interest. Former House Speaker and Fox News contributor Newt Gingrich is here. I would love to get your take. Let me just show you the New York Post cover today in which it says DeSantis must show leadership. Sorry, it's a headline, not the cover. DeSantis must show leadership on issues like Ukraine to win the White House. Now, Mr. Speaker, do you think that foreign policy principles matter a lot to voters in the end when they're choosing a president? I think it matters a lot because I think voters have an instinct that the commander in chief is central to our being safe. So uh, historically, uh, you can go all the way back to John F. Kennedy, <clears throat> who as a young man had to prove to voters that you could trust him with being president. And I think it's a big deal. Uh, but there's a very fundamental argument underway, and, and it's really two parts. One part is having lost a 20-year war in Afghanistan. Uh, how much do we want to run around the planet uh, not exactly knowing what we're doing and not getting anything done but losing lives and spending money? And the other part is, as long as Joe Biden is president, uh, why would you trust anything uh, he, they're not protecting the American border. I would argue that the southern border with Mexico is far more important to the United States than Ukraine. Uh, I have no faith in Biden, whose family has been corrupted by China, when it comes to our biggest competitor, which is China. And now you come to Ukraine. You have a Defense Department which lost $82 billion in equipment to the Taliban, a Defense Department which is now more worried about being woke than it is about being effective. And I think that really undermines the willingness of many Republicans to give them a blank check. I think as Speaker McCarthy's line is right. Uh, they shouldn't get a blank check. I personally believe defeating Putin matters. But I also think the current administration has, has no strategy. They have no ability uh, to defeat Putin. And the free, free societies don't fight long wars well. People get tired of it. They don't understand where it's going. And, and I think uh, you're seeing a real erosion, largely because Joe Biden is so incompetent. He doesn't talk about it a lot either in terms of the, from Biden's perspective of why he thinks it's in America's national interest. In fact, if you look at the Pew poll, this is call for number four. American support for Ukraine is only 51 percent of Americans believe the U.S. is giving the right amount or not enough to support Ukraine. Let's look at call for number three. This is a chart showing that the United States, far and away, is the largest contributor to helping Ukraine um, in terms right. of military, financial, and humanitarian aid. So that is certainly on the minds of voters, and it might even be on the minds right. of the candidates. 
you know, then that's where President Trump was making a real difference because he had browbeaten NATO into actually increasing their investment by $400 billion uh, when people thought it wasn't possible. And I suspect had he been president, we would have intervened very fast, very decisively, and we would have demanded that the Germans and others do their fair share. Mm -hmm. it's, it's ridiculous to say that the United States ought to, you know, we're creating a welfare state in Ukraine because Biden's people can't help themselves. Uh, they want, it's one thing to say, I'm going to send you tanks, which they didn't do for a long time. It's another thing to say, by the way, here are some checks to take care of you. We want you to feel good about yourself while you're being bombed. Um, this administration is stunningly incompetent, uh, and that has real-world consequences. So a lot, that many of these potential Republican candidates and some declared candidates on the Republican side have been going to Iowa for that early contest. But Vice President Kamala Harris, she is going to be going there tomorrow. She's going to focus on reproductive rights. That will be the issue that she's focused on. But what does that say to you? The Democrats have kind of written Iowa off in terms of a first state. They're not going to do that, what we have done traditionally there. But she's going to make a move to try to shore up some support for Democrats in Iowa? Well, my first question is, how many times will she laugh? Uh, my second question is, maybe each Republican congressman in Iowa should invite her to come and have a town hall meeting in their district. I think the more people in Iowa get to meet Kamala Harris, the less likely they are to vote for her. Uh, so I think it's good for us. But, you know, the Democrats have this terrible bind. I mean, if Biden does end up running for re-election and if he does get renominated, is he really going to have her as the vice presidential nominee? Mm -hmm. I think that if you go out and look at the country at large, she has a remarkably small base of support. And when the more people see of it, I think the more the, the smaller her support gets. Do you think that's why he's waiting to announce? I have no idea. Well, and I think they want to do a rose garden strategy. They're replacing the basement uh, in uh, uh, in Delaware with the rose garden in the White House. And I think they would like him to remain president as long as possible mm -hmm. and not be a candidate, which is not irrational. I got and it. He's done yeah. a very good job. Uh, and, and you know this, you know, you know this from your own White House experience. Presidents have huge reach uh, inside their own party and they can bring a lot of uh, both uh, advantages and disadvantages to their friends and their opponents. Yeah, and he will be in Nevada today giving a speech about pharmaceutical drug costs. And Mr. Speaker, always good to see you. Thank you. Good to see you. I'm Steve Ducey. I'm Brian Kilmeade. And I'm Ainsley Earhart. And click here to subscribe to the Fox News YouTube page to catch our hottest interviews and most compelling analysis.